0: Grace Point. If you are a sixth through 12th grader, you can head on down uh, to your class downstairs. How's everybody doing? Fine. <laughs> I don't know that we're all there, but we're going to get there if that keeps up. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we are so glad you're here. We're continuing a series that we've been in uh, for basically this year uh, so far. It's called Rhythm, and what we've been exploring are These practices, some of them are things we thought maybe when we sort of made this journey to becoming a progressive Christian, that they didn't make sense anymore. We didn't know what to do with them. And so we've been working through, like, what what do we do with them? What do we do with prayer? What do we do with the Bible? What do we do? Last week, we talked about fasting and feasting. Like, what do we do with those kinds of practices? And today, we're going to talk about creation uh, as sort of one of those things we get to enter into that will transform us. Before we do that, I want to begin with this quote from Brian McLaren. Just to, it really sums up sort of what we've been talking about so far. Spiritual people seek practical ways to nourish that sense of integration and communion. I, I just want to stop there and say, I think thinking about the spiritual life as a way to be an, a fully integrated human being is a beautiful way to approach it. And I think for lots of us, the way we were sort of handed did more to fragment us than integrate us. And what if we saw the spiritual life as being a path toward wholeness? a path toward becoming a whole, healthy, centered human being. I think that's what he meant by that. That's my commentary. Uh, It might be meditating, hiking on a wilderness trail, volunteering at a soup kitchen, doing yoga, going to art galleries, participating in festivals, or going on pilgrimages. It might be fasting, feasting, or having deep talks with a few friends. Whatever the specifics spiritual people have, or at least wish they had some set of moves, rhythms, habits, or practices that, to some degree at least, keep them from sleepwalking or going on autopilot. So they live with a greater sensitivity to the sacred aliveness and meaning that surrounds them. It's about not going on autopilot. Life is too short to live it on autopilot. Are you with me? It's too short, it's too brief, it is a vapor. Uh, And to live it on autopilot is really to miss the gift, that life is. And so these practices we've talked about have been things we can do, right? We can pray, meditate, we can open the Bible, we can fast, we can feast, we can Sabbath, we can practice hospitality. Creation is a bit different in the sense that creation really isn't something you do. Creation is something you experience. Um, Creation is something that is available everywhere you go, you're surrounded by the world. I love Psalm 24. It begins with sort of this explosion of excitement. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants too, because God is the one who established it it on the seas. God set it firmly on the waters. I love that. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? All that is exists in God. There is no place. One of the Psalms says, where can I go to flee from you? Like Everywhere I go, you're there. It's about recognizing this creation that we have, this beautiful world that we get to live and play and create in is ultimately a gift that everybody participates in. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, that's just a God-forsaken place, that's just a God-forsaken person? Have you ever heard that phrase? Here's the problem. It just isn't true. There are places that human beings have forsaken. There are people that have been forsaken by other human beings. But there is no place that exists outside of God. And so as we begin to think through creation, I, I love what Richard Rohr said. He, he calls creation the first Bible. Long before it was ever words on a page, creation was speaking, was singing, was inviting, was beckoning, was showing off and inviting us to wonder and ponder the mystery and the more. And of course, our ancestors, when they begin to notice things, they begin to describe them as deities, right? But what we, we, we know differently and we know that creation, the sun isn't a god, but the sun in some ways at just the right angle can really open us up to God in an even bigger way, right? It's, it's interesting to me, the massiveness. Like we, we live, do you ever just think about this? The universe. Like you're trying to go to sleep and you're like, huh. The universe, that's a thing. And then you're up for like a month and a half. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, what do you do with that? And then the smallness. Like, have you ever just been like, they split the atom. We have subatomic particles. I don't know what any of that means, but I know that it's really tiny, and it's really, really fascinating. You think about matter, the stuff you can see, touch, taste, all the matter, us, this building, these chairs. And then dark matter, which makes up like 95% of everything, and they don't know what it is, but it's everywhere. What a weird world to live in. (laughs) What a weird universe to call home. And here we are, you know, uh, on a rock spinning around a big massive star just going around, going around, going around. And how often do we stop to just appreciate the going around? That we, we live our lives on autopilot, we sleepwalk, and we miss that creation is inviting us into something More Creation is the first Bible and it's begging to be read. Now, when the Bible, the actual pages writing Bible, when it begins, it begins with two different creation stories. The first one is a Hebrew poem and it's sort of trying to create creation, this image of creation as a temple that God will dwell in. And God puts God's images in that temple, right? So it's essentially all of creation in Genesis 1 is meant to be seen as a temple. Genesis 2 tells a different creation story. If Genesis 1 is big and universal, the creation story in Genesis 2 is small and personal. Um, And it begins uh, with God creating basically everything and then God creating a human being. Let's read this in Genesis 2. On the day the Lord God made the earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, because the Lord hadn't yet sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. And then verse 15, the Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and take care of it. The the second creation story, you know, in the first creation story, God just makes human beings. In the second one, God gets dirt under God's fingernails. God digs into the soil Forms a human being, performs the first act of CPR, and brings this human being to life. And I just have this image in my head um, of, who, who remembers the cartoon Frosty the Snowman? When Frosty gets the hat, what does he say? Happy birthday. I just like to write that into the text here for me. Like God breathes into his nose, he's like, happy birthday, right? And you have a living, breathing human being. And this living, breathing human being who has a job to do to take care of the soil, this living, breathing human being is taken out of the ground and given this mission, care for everything that you've been given. Creation is a gift. Care for it. Now, there's an interesting wordplay in Hebrew. So the word uh, Adam, which sometimes, or the word Adam means like human being. It sometimes gets translated man, but it's referring to human beings. Um, Adam, human being, ground or fertile land is uh, Adama. So Adam, which is not a personal name, it's just like a, like he's a human, right? Like uh, Ad- Adam was taken from the Adama. There is an implicit, intricate, intimate connection between this first human being and the dirt. He literally was just it, right? The first walking human being was a dirt bag, <laughs> right? Like he's formed from the ground. Eventually, he's going to go back to the ground. There's something connecting the human and the soil. We are dependent on creation. Okay, quick survey. How many of you enjoy breathing? Okay, not not enough of you to maybe raise, (laughs) raise some alarms, if I can be honest. But yeah, we're dependent on plants doing plant things to produce what we need, oxygen, to begin to breathe and to have life and to function. Anybody here like to eat food? Yeah, we're dependent on the ground and the sun and the stars and all the things that do the rain, everything to produce food for us to eat and have nourishment. We have this interdependence on creation, even though most of the time we don't think about it. Like we don't, we don't think about it when we go in the grocery store and we pick up an apple, right? that, that This depended on somebody doing a thing which depended on creation participating in the process. And I know how hard it is to grow stuff. I try every year to grow things. I get a box garden, I put soil in there, I do all the things they tell me to do, and I plant stuff, and I get, like, one tomato. <laughs> I, I, I spent, like, $75 to grow one <laughs> tomato, right? But the, but there's something about it. It's hard to do. Like, you're, you're dependent on a lot of things going right, and all of those things are outside of your control, which makes sense of why our ancestors would realize we need certain things to fall into line. So maybe there's a deity that that big glowing disk in the sky is a deity and we need that deity to be on our side so because we need just the right amount of that deity's presence right or the rain like we need we need rain but we don't need too much rain so we have to deal with this god who's in charge of the storms and of rain of course they did that of course they did that but their point is still valid we are super dependent on all sorts of things we can see and not see to sustain human life on this planet And so I want want us to think about creation in this sort of spiritual practice way, uh, in, in two specific ways. One, I think creation is a transformative experience. Just being part of creation, in creation, out in the world, it's a transformative experience. A few years ago, we have some friends whose grandpa had a condo on Hilton Head. And there's a, a private beach there. And so we got to go stay for a couple years. And one particular year we were there. I love the ocean. I, I love being in the ocean. I don't like when things touch your leg in the ocean because that's that's troubling. But otherwise, so I'm out in the ocean and I've gotten out far enough where the the current is really strong and it's starting to pull me. And I can see that we were here, that's where we're staying, but now it's over here, right? Like, so I'm being pulled away. And then as I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm gonna go back in, three dolphins surface from about, you know, for me to maybe... Uh, David there, and th- they, they surface, and then they see me, and I see them, and I'm like, what do we do? We're fellow mammals. Maybe I should try to talk to it. Um, and so the dolphins are there. I'm there treading water, get, being a little exhausted by the current, and they come closer and closer, and then they're like, for me to Sandy away, and I'm like, I- is it going to, is the dolphin going to let me pet it? Because this would be the best story ever. <laughs> like, I'm, I- I'm one with nature, Right? And he comes over closer, and I I start to reach out, and then the current pulls, and then they just sort of go underwater, and they swim away. And we were like this close. We made eye contact. We were that close. And I remember just thinking, wow. I mean, I've seen dolphins before, I guess. Do I have those at aquariums? Okay, I've seen them at aquariums. It's nothing like seeing it in the wild where you're wondering, will it eat me? Or will it see a kindred spirit in me? (laughs) Like, how's this gonna go? There was something about that experience, being in the water, being with that, those animals, that was really just was like everything is connected in a super lovely and beautiful way. A couple weeks ago, or actually last week, we got home from somewhere and we were pulling in our driveway and we noticed some movement, uh, and then we turned our headlights on bright and we ran across these deer. How many of you have ever seen a deer before? Yeah. Okay. Why is it? We've all seen them. Why is it that we all freak out every time? <laughs> like whether you're in a car, that's, there's a reason for that one. But I mean like deer and everybody's like, oh, we've never seen that before. There's something about just seeing them there in our backyard, just doing deer stuff. not Like whatever they do, not paying attention to us, not being afraid of us. I mean we're blinding them, so maybe they don't know what to do. But there's just some there was something about that that I saw them, like we just sat there and watched them until they went on their way. And there was just such this moment for me of like, what a wonderful, beautiful world. Like there's a lot of stuff we gotta work on, and there's some really ugly stuff that happens in the world, but that deer is oblivious to all of it. They're just living their best life in my backyard. And in some way, allowing me to be part of it and feel connected to them. Over the last several years, I've become more engaged in creation, I guess, and appreciating it. So I've been taking lots of of pictures on my phone. So let me show you a couple. Um, I was driving past this field one day. Just a field. Nobody's mowing it. Nobody's planting anything there. And it was early in the morning, and the fog was just starting to sort of settle And I I just looked at that and thought, my goodness, what a beautiful, beautiful. How many times I had driven past this field, I cannot tell you. Um, This is in uh, Morgantown where we lived. And I lived there for almost 15 years and drove past this all the time. And it was this particular morning, for some reason, I slowed myself enough to drive by. And I think I actually passed it, turned around, came back, took the picture. It was like one of those things for me that I was just somehow aware of the the beauty, and um, there's this word in Hebrew, uh, it gets translated glory, but it's the word kavod, and it really just means like weight or significance. And that was what it felt like in that moment, that being able to see this before, you know, the sun burned off the fog, being able to just see this and take it in for a moment, it just felt significant and weighty. Uh, Next. House we lived in, Uh, the sun set there. I mean, it sets everywhere, I guess, but you know what I mean, a good view. And uh, I have hundreds of sunset shots from different points in the year because every time it would be like getting home from work, getting home from dinner, and going inside the house and seeing the sun do what the sun does, and the sky would be just so beautiful and orange, and sometimes it was pink, and I just couldn't help but take pictures of it. Uh, I also like taking pictures of trees. That's a new thing I've been doing. And so um, this was in our backyard. By the way, I partly showed this so you know the sky is still blue because we haven't seen it in a while. Um, That's what it's supposed to look like on on good days. Um, There's something about just looking at nature and realizing that stuff just grows. We we live in a creative world. Our planet just does stuff. Like We don't go outside and say, hey tree, grow, and give me oxygen. That's not how it works. It just continually, creation continually pours out gifts to us all of the time. And it's a transformative experience watching the sunset, being in the ocean, taking a walk. There's a picture of this country lane uh, I have up, I think, and uh, just taking a walk down that road, um, watching for snakes because that's what you're taught. Where I'm from, you're really taught to watch for snakes a lot. A lot of snake handlers back there, so you never know when your church breaks out what's going to (laughs) happen. No snakes on that road. Um, There's just something beautiful about that, isn't there? There's just something that makes you go, oh, When you're out doing that, it sort of feels like it's going to be okay. We've got a lot of problems, a lot of stuff to sort through and work through, but we're going to be okay. Creation keeps showing up every day. We're going to be okay. Any Mary Oliver fans in the room? Mary Oliver, um, brilliant poet. I think she passed away last year or the year before. Just brilliant, beautiful poet. She has a poem called Wild Geese. Um, I'm thinking about starting a Christian festival geared around that. Some of you know why that's funny, because there already is one. Uh, Here's what she says toward the end. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. And I think that's what I was feeling in the ocean with those dolphins or watching the deer in the backyard or seeing the sunset or strolling down the country road or, or taking pictures of the tree. like I think what it is is it reminds me that I have a place and we're all family. Like Everything that exists is dependent on everyone else and everything else that exists and it's a reminder that I have a place in this and you have a place in this. We belong in the family of things. And if we let creation, I mean, if we really had paid attention to the first Bible creation the whole time, we would never have done some of the horrible, atrocious, horrendous things we've done to each other. If we all realize that it is just a gift to breathe air, it is a gift to be with other people, it is a gift to be with dolphins, right? Like there, there is this, these gifts that are continually being handed to us and we're on autopilot so often. We just keep moving and moving to the next thing and we never take a moment to stop and open and receive the gift. And I think when we do that, creation transforms us in beautiful, wonderful ways. And I also think caring for creation can be a transformative experience. Just need to get this out here. Climate change is real and it's caused by human beings. Okay, so we're just gonna say that. On the front end, because that's still news in some places, uh, we have a we have a climate problem on this planet. Um, and it's not a wet, just a weather problem, like it's getting warmer when it should be getting cooler, or there are tornadoes in January. Like none of that, like that's part of it. But the climate itself is changing, and that's going to have dramatic effects, specifically dramatic effects on people who are... Um, um, vulnerable, right? Like, so the poor, those who are experiencing homelessness, people who don't have access to, like, be able to adapt and buy new things and build new things. It's going to affect those people. It is affecting those people uh, worse than anybody else. Climate change is a real problem. But we are not primarily invited to care for the planet because of climate change. And if we had known this, we wouldn't be dealing with climate change in the same way we are. We're, we were actually way back in the beginning of the story, way back for us, in our tradition, it reminds us. Remember Genesis 15, where God places the man in the garden, settled him there and to farm it and take care of it. The first human being in Genesis 2 was the first environmentalist, was the first person to see that creation is a gift and that how we treat it matters. I put it like this, creation is a gift to be enjoyed, and the care of creation is a responsibility we all share. Now, I have to confess, I'm late to this party when it comes to caring for the planet in this way. Um, I I grew up in the coal fields. I went to college on coal money. So I understand, like, I'm not, you know, there are all sorts of weird stuff I feel sometimes around, like, talking about these issues. Because I've benefited from stuff that has actually put our planet in danger, right? But when you know better, you do better. Did Oprah say that? I think Oprah said that. We're going to credit Oprah with that. I mean, it was just time for quote Oprah. So there you go. You know better. You do better. Um, But there's this sense of we're we're at a place where we need to dramatically change how we're living and how we're interacting with the world around us. And I think that this original call to be gardeners, to be people who care for the planet, is something that we haven't like. It's not like now that we haven't done it well as we should have. It's it's over. We can actually begin to do it. And and I found that doing things like gardening, right, like actually. Knowing where that one tomato came from, because nothing else grows, but that one tomato or like that one squash, right? Knowing that that grew in my yard, there's something powerful and beautiful about that. It gets your hands in the soil. You have a connection to the dirt. I think what some folks have mentioned, um, and I think it's a valid point, that we live in a society right now, a world where lots and lots of us don't know where our food comes from. It just shows up, right? It just shows up on a plate. And there's a a cost to all of that, and there are human costs to all of that, and there's environmental costs to all that, and asking those hard questions is really, really important. I also found that picking up trash can be a deeply spiritual experience. So as a church in Kentucky, we would, every summer, every summer they would, uh, the the city government would say, hey, we're going to do some trash pickup, we'll donate X amount of dollars to your organization if you go out and pick up trash. And so, I mean... The first time I did it, I was super depressed. There was so much trash everywhere, and everybody in that town is apparently drinking really bad (laughs) whiskey—like terrible plastic whiskey bottles everywhere. Um, And you know, you you do it for a few years, and you realize we're still doing the same things. But there's something—the more you did it, even when it's hot and you're miserable—like there was something about it that was like, this is this is sort of giving the planet the dignity it deserves, right? Clearing away the trash. And giving the planet the dignity it deserves. I don't know about you, but I feel really indebted to this planet because without it, I would not exist. So how we treat it really, really does matter because creation is ultimately a gift. And when we see ourselves as part of our Christian identity, if you're a Christian, if you're not part of whatever identity, your atheist identity, your agnostic identity, whatever, part of our identity as human beings is grounded in taking care of the home that we've been given. It's treating it well. It's realizing that right now it seems like a lot of our leaders on a national level uh, and maybe even state levels are willing to kick the can down the road to their grandkids and their great-grandkids gang- who may not have the life that we've enjoyed because the problems could be so out of control. Uh, it means engaging. It means recognizing that there are actual things we can do to care for, bring dignity to, and still enjoy the heck out of God's creation. Right? Like there, there's a lot we can do. So I'm going to invite our band to come back up. We're going to celebrate communion in just a minute. But I, I want to kind of just wrap up by saying, I, over the last couple years, I, over the last year, I, I've started becoming uncomfortable with some of the language I use to describe my beliefs, my, fa- my faith, my theology, because the, the sort of what, we inhe- what I inherited, too, was this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction. How many of you have heard of deconstruction and reconstruction? Yeah, right? So you deconstruct something, and then hopefully the goal is you reconstruct something in its place. But then I realized one day, um, what happens when that needs to be deconstructed? What do you do? You deconstruct that. And then what do you do? You reconstruct something else. And then suddenly you're like, why do I keep building these buildings <laughs> only to tear them down? So I, I think for me, uh, deconstruct, reconstruct, while that's still language that may be helpful for lots of people, and we still use it and we still will use it, and it really connects with people where they are. Where I'm at, I really want to lean into an organic theology, And what I mean by organic theology is stop using the terms deconstruct, reconstruct from my own personal experience because I don't want to reconstruct anything anymore. I don't want to build up another theological foundation that I need to knock down. And the image that has come to mean so much to me is the image of a garden. Because what do you do with a garden? You plant things. You water them. You tend to them. You weed it. They grow. They nourish you. Sometimes they don't grow. Some things get, and so at the end of a season, you have all this leftover dead plant stuff lying around. What do you do with it? Do you say, you know, well, this garden's useless. I can't do anything with it now. There's all this dead plant stuff laying around. No, it's when you till it up, and you're putting the the dead stuff that you couldn't use anymore, you're putting those nutrients back into the soil, and next year's harvest will be intimately connected to all the things that didn't make it. Anybody in here had to unlearn anything ever? Anybody in here go through that, like, I'm so angry at the world because anybody else do that? Like I had like a five year period where I was just angry, listened to lots of like Avril Lavigne, I was just angry. (laughs) Um, and I didn't know what to do with the anger, right? I didn't know where to place it and beginning to realize that part of who I am is still connected to all that stuff I had to unlearn and all that stuff was somehow incorporated into this story, turned over again and again, and was still life-giving in the sense that it helped push me to the next right thing. So that's where I'm at. I I, want to create an organic theology, one that invites us to move into just the next, it's the next growing season, and we're not going to sit around and focus on the last growing season. We're just going to keep tilling up the soil, tilling up the soil so that we can produce good crops, so that everybody can be nourished, and so that the world gets a little bit better. Are you with me? All right.